Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome back to another episode of History Hack. We are always excited about who we've got on today. Beth, tell us who we've got on. Yes, so um, we've got Ed Perkins here again to return um, to discuss his book some more as we loved chatting to him before. So Ed, to remind you, is a journalist and historian, and he is talking to us again about his first book, Britain's Forgotten Traitor, about the life of Oswald John Job. Hi, Ed. Hello there. We've got you back on. We're going to get rocking and rolling. And I think Beth, I think Beth should kick us off with the next question. I can do that. I can kick it off. So where we're going to now is back to England. So Ed, could you give us a little bit of info on what happened to Job when he got back to England? Well, he just got out of internment in Paris and then he made his way to Spain and to Lisbon and was put on a flying boat at Lisbon by the British authorities. And he arrived back by flying boat at Poole Harbour in Dorset. And he was taken to the terminal in Poole and sat there with all the other people who got off the plane and was expecting special treatment because he'd been an SKP. And so he saw a uniformed man there and went up to him and said, am I going to be given priority treatment because I'm someone special? And he was given short shrift, basically, by the uniformed man who happened to be a port security man, man who was a MI5 officer. So he had to wait his turn. Um, what he didn't know was that Britain, the MI5 were running double agents at the time. These are agents that were turned, uh, German agents that were turned to supply information back to Germany without German knowledge, but sent back by MI5, one of whom was an agent called Dragonfly. And Dragonfly had received a message from his German spy masters saying that there was going to be payment coming to him. He'd been trying to get payment for a long time. Payment coming to him in the form of a valuable tie pin and a cluster diamond ring. Now, Job, of course, didn't know anything about that whatsoever, but they were on the lookout for someone, a courier coming into the country 
carrying that tie pin and the diamond ring. So anyhow, he was then, his turn came eventually to be interrogated. Turned out one of the people interrogating him was the same man that he'd uh, received the short shift from before. And so he came out with his own story about how he got out of internment, how he got trains down to the border with Spain, how he's managed somehow to cross on stepping stones the river Bidasoa and found his way eventually to Lisbon. Once he'd finished the story, I think there was some scepticism about it amongst the MI5 security men who were listening, but they didn't show any sign of it, and they took him away to be searched. And lo and behold, when they looked at, when, when they took off his jacket on his waistcoat, what was he carrying but a valuable time pin? And in one of the pockets was a little calico packet, inside which was a cluster diamond ring along, it has to be said, with a gold tip of a walking stick and a gold tooth. Now, they were pretty shrewd, the pool MI5 men of port security, and they didn't, because they knew that MI5 were on the lookout for him, and they contacted their headquarters, and they let him enter Britain, but what they did, they put a tail on him. First thing he does is hops into a cab and he goes to Bournemouth, where he's going to stay the night at the Hotel Merville. Now, during that night, he encounters his first German air raid because the Germans bombed Bournemouth that very night, resulting in one person killed, but more than a thousand houses damaged or destroyed. Next day, he gets out, checks out of the hotel and makes his way to Bournemouth Station, tailed, of course, by an MI5 man. They see him catch a train to Waterloo, contact MI5 headquarters, tell them that a portly man aged about 58 with two suitcases and a briefcase and jowls is on his way. They tell him which carriage he's in. And when, they, when, when, when Job arrives in Waterloo Station, they're there waiting for him. Surreptitiously spot him in the crowd of passengers getting off the train and follow him. What Job does to start with is he wanders around central London, goes to Leicester Square, pops into a pharmacy, makes a phone call probably to his brother working in a wine store in central London, and then eventually gets his way back to Charing Cross where he meets up with his brother who's just finished work. They jump on a train from Charing Cross to Lewisham on board which the MI5 tail follows them. Now that tail, that MI5 professional watcher claims that during that journey, Job said to his brother that because I've just come out of an occupied country, there's a good chance I'm being watched. Now that's pertinent because if he's being watched, it would explain why in the coming weeks he was to lie low and do very little in terms of spying. Eventually, he arrives at Lewisham, stays, keeps a low profile for the next few days. He um, reports in at Catford Police Station and on November the 11th, a few days later, he goes down to Devonshire House, which was at Piccadilly, where he had a formal in, um, in, interview with about his immigration. And he comes out with his usual old escape story. They don't really believe it, but they let him carry on because they want to keep an eye on who he's going to meet. Eventually, he calls in again, actually, about three days later to claim some expenses off them for his bus fare, and that's by the by, and also mentions to them then the story about Amory, John Amory, the traitor who went to the camp he was in and tried to recruit people for the Legion of St. George to fight alongside German soldiers. But eventually, he... Um, Three weeks after he'd, after he'd arrived in the country, he takes a bus from Lewisham to Charing Cross again, gets off the bus, 
walks towards Trafalgar Square and suddenly in the middle of an island in the middle of the road, turns around and confronts the MI5 professional tail who was supposed to be cleverly watching him from a distance. And he says, I know you're following me. What are you doing this for? Who put you onto me? And the MI5 tail has to bluff and say, I don't know what he's talking about. But because it was now clear that Job knew he was being followed, what happened next was that very night, a knock comes on the door soon after his brothers come, come home from work. They answer the door and there's an inspector from Scotland Yard there with two other police officers and two shadowy figures in the background who were the men from MI5. They take him straight away down to a place called Camp 001, which is a specialist interrogation center in Fulham. And they leave him on his own in a solitary cell overnight to stew on it. Next day, they call him up and give him an interview. He comes up yet again with the old story about his escape. And Captain Olaf Olsen, who's interviewed him, finishes by saying, I do not believe you. Job then rather foolishly says, I'm sorry you gentlemen don't believe me. It's a great shock to me to come back to my own country after all this time and find that my word is doubted. That words, those words are going to come back to haunt him at his trial. So they take him back to his cell and leave him to stew a second night in the cell. He wakes up next morning, realizes that he hasn't been believed, he's not going to be believed, and that they've confiscated from his brother's home all his possessions, among which was his razor and his keys. And in his razor and his keys was invisible ink that had been put in there by the German Secret Service. He kind of realized that that was it. And the next morning when a major cousin comes to see him, major cousin being the same MI5 officer who was later to interrogate P.G. Wodehouse about the broadcasts he made when he was in Berlin, cousin confronts him and said, it's time you told the truth. He says, I know, and he confesses in part. He tells the story of how he was recruited by the German secret service in Paris and how he made his mistake. But what he doesn't say is anything about the jewelry. He still claims that he came by it fairly, that the ring was his wife's and the rest of it. What Major Cousin then does is he writes something on a card, holds it up in front of him and in Job was to read the very address to which he was supposed to deliver that um, tie pin and cluster gold diamond ring to an address in West Hampstead. It was the address to which he was due to deliver it so that it would go on and go on to Agent Dragonfly as payment. So talk to us, who was Agent Dragonfly? Well, we've got to remember that at this time, Bletchley Park, the top secret code breakers had cracked the Abwehr code, the German secret service code, and they were reading all the German messages. And consequently, they knew all the German agents who were sent to Britain. Brilliant, uh, brilliant operation. And they either turned them into double agents or locked them up. And they included people like Zizag, Garbo, Agent Treasure, and the rest of them. Dragonfly was slightly different because he volunteered. He wasn't turned into a double agent. His name was Hans George, and he was like Job. He was British by birth of German parents. But in the 1920s, he'd gone back, he'd moved to Germany, where he'd met a Dutch wife. And as war was looming, they had a baby. And they decided to move with, uh, after the war had started, back to the Netherlands, which was his wife's home. While they were there, the German Secret Service tapped him up. They knew he was good at operating um, shortwave radio and they wanted him to be a spy, so they tapped him up. He said, 
no, I don't want to spy for Germany. They weren't satisfied with that. And so they contacted his sister, who was married to a German, to get her to try to recruit him. What they rather cleverly did was they knew that before he'd left Germany, he'd not paid for a coat that he'd ordered from a tailor. And that coat, the German Secret Service then went and paid for, got hold of, gave to his sister and put a message in the lining of the coat. The message being to encourage Job to, uh, sorry, to encourage Hans George to go to Britain and spy for the Germans. He neither gives them a yes or a no, but very soon after that, he, his wife and their new baby make their way to London. And the first thing that he does when he gets to London is he contacts MI5 and tells them he's been tapped up by the German Secret Service. MI5 being the smart fellows that they were, immediately saw the opportunity and set him up as a double agent. First thing he does, the Germans had contacted him and said they need to meet up in Lisbon, neutral country. And so with MI5's approval, he makes his way to Lisbon, where they give him, the German Secret Service gives him a gramophone. Inside the gramophone was the shortwave high-tech radio that he could send messages back. Then under MI5's control, he sends messages back over the next few years about convoys and troop movements and all the rest of it. He was pretty instrumental in putting bluff information to the Germans regarding Operation Torch, the Allied invasion of North Africa, for example. But the problem that Hans George had was that the Germans couldn't find a way to pay him. Um, he kept complaining about that over the wireless with MI5's approval. And MI5 said, to quote them once, he, they sent, he sent them a message to the German Secret Service asking for payment using, quote, uncomplimentary language. Eventually, they managed to find some way to pay him. They sent him a message. This is on the 15th of September, 1943, not long before Job arrives, saying, have sent type in with diamond ring and large stone plus 18 small diamond stones to a person traveling there. And then about a month later, he gets another message from the German Secret Service saying the jewelry will be arriving in the next few days. 1st of November, Job arrives in Poole, and lo and behold, in his waistcoat, he's got a type in and a gold ring in that calico packet in his pocket. And so on November the 26th, sorry, November the 22nd, when Job's arrested, Dragonfly is effectively mothballed by MI5 because with Job's arrest, it will be likely that the Germans will guess that he's been turned. So he lives the rest of his life, I think, a quiet life in suburban London. And that's Agent Dragonfly. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Brilliant. If you take us back to, um, to the, the time of Job, he's been arrested, he, they're preparing for trial. I mean, how guilty was he looking at this point? What kind of other evidence had they kind of weighed up against him? Uh, he was, um, he was, uh, MI5 were pretty confident that the 
that he was the courier that they were expecting to bring this type type in and doing in. And they're also pretty confident he'd been given other missions as well as that. One key thing that um, they cleverly discovered was that amongst his possessions when he left Paris were banknotes. He hadn't got very many of them, but he carried banknotes. And when they looked at the serial numbers on the banknotes, two of them, I think it was, were very close in number to the banknotes that Agent Dragonfly had been given when he'd gone to Lisbon to pick up that gramophone. They were just two or three digits different. So they were pretty certain that he'd been paid that limited number of banknotes by the German Secret Service. He'd also, of course, in his confession, he'd said that he was trained in spycraft in a special villa near the, in, in a square near the Bois de Boulogne in Paris. And uh, he'd been trained in using the invisible ink. He'd been taught a wireless code to send messages, uh, to, to, to receive messages. The Germans would send them out to him via Deutschland sender, which was a German radio station that you could pick up in Britain. So there was a lot of evidence building up that, um, you know, that made it clear that he was a spy, as well, of course, eventually by his own, his own confession. Um, he admitted that the whole story he'd given before was a fairy story, to use Job's own words. He'd not hitched a lift with a lorry or any of that nonsense. What had happened was the German Secret Service had collected him at Paris. Um, an, an agent called Werner and Anton had then taken him by train all the way down to close to the border where they had a car waiting for him to take to the border where he could then just cross the river into Spain, which is what happened. Um, he then was given the jewellery on that journey to give to Dragonfly, but of course he was arrested without that ever being delivered. He always claimed that he never intended delivering it, but it was in his pocket. So he didn't, it appeared, listen to any wireless messages. He didn't send any invisible ink letters. What, he, what, what the Germans had asked him to do was to write letters to other internees from the Saint-Denis camp that he'd been in and put invisible writing on the, on, on the other side of those letters, which would give him codes about where bombs were falling in London and also about morale of the British people. They would then intercept those letters before they were delivered to the internees at Saint-Denis. Um, yeah, what happened really was after, after Campo 01 um, and his confessions there, he was taken to a place called Camp 020, which was a pretty brutal spy prison in Ham Common near Richmond. And there he was subjected by um, the, the commandant. There was a guy called Colonel Robin Tinai Stevens. Tinai because he wore a monocle almost all the time. And he also looked a bit like a Gestapo officer. What happened at Camp Road? They always said there was no physical um, ill treatment dished out, but there was certainly what many today might regard as psychological torture because what they basically did was you were deprived of sleep, you were made to stand up for very long periods, you were interrogated numerous times with people shouting at you and all sorts of things like that. He didn't actually come out with an awful lot of new information as far as I can work out, apart from admitting that one of his trips from Paris to Monto down to see his wife wasn't in fact to test the trains. It was to secretly spy on her to see if she'd be faithful. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What happens then during this period when he's in the spy prison, Camp 020, is that Bletchley Park codebreakers intercept another message. This one's being sent from the German Secret Service in Bordeaux to Lisbon, and it said, please ascertain whether English subject Joe traveling for England is still staying at the Pension San Sao, or whether he's already left the country. Joe is a V-man. Now, a V-man is important because a V-man is German meaning an agent. So now they had an official confirmation that the Germans regarded Oswald John Job as an agent. And um, first of all, while he's in Camp 020, MI5 are chewing up what to do with him. Their first inkling, inclination, I should say, was to run him as a double agent. And there were certain problems with that, one of which was his means of communication by post and not wireless was difficult to control. And the second was that no one, of course, trusted him. And so the decision was taken not to run him as a double agent, but to hang him. And... Churchill wanted people, uh, wanted spies hanged basically because it was a macabre PR exercise and MI5 wanted the odd spy court to hang because that would convince the Germans that they weren't, that their agents hadn't been turned and MI5 was behaving normally. And so poor old Job, if you can regard him as that, was labelled as a man to be hanged. January 1944, this is less than three months after his arrival in Britain. He's sent to the Old Bailey for a trial. He pleads not guilty, saying he never had any intention when he took up the mission of actually carrying out a spying mission. In his defence, he said he reminded people that um, he'd been recruited by Captain Langdon as, a, as part of a resistance unit at Saint-Denis. Um, and he claimed rather stupidly, instead of saying that he intended to keep the jewel, which is a, the jewelry, which is what I'm sure he intended to do, that he was going to post it anonymously back to the police with the invisible ink and the wireless code, etc. That sounded very lame indeed, and the jury and the judge didn't swallow it at all. And the black cat went on the judge's head, and he was sentenced to be hanged, which he was within five months of his arrival in Britain on March the 17th, 1944, by Albert Pierpoint, and he was buried in an unmarked grave at Pentonville Prison. Subsequently, everyone thought it's, uh, the, the, the claim, his claim that he was being sent there to report back on bomb damage sounded ridiculous because the blitz was long over in its main form. But of course, he was proved to be probably right because not long after his being hanged, Hitler's V weapons started raining down on London, the flying bombs and the, the V2 rockets and the rest of it with huge damage. And it's also 
he claimed that Langdon, he'd been, he'd been tapped up by Langdon, Captain Langdon, Langdon for the resistance. MI5 at his trial said they hadn't been able to prove one way or another whether a Captain Langdon existed or not. In fact, Captain Langdon did exist and was helping a resistance group by hiding Allied airmen in Longjumeau where he lived. Okay. I'm interested in knowing because in one of the reports he's actually described as a as a quote as a coward, and that even the Germans were doubtful that this man would have the courage to carry out this overt act. In your opinion, do you actually think this is a fair assessment of him? Well, the line about um, the Germans doubting it, I mean, where did MI5 get that from? The likelihood is just quoting something that Job said to them. That's my opinion. Was he a coward? I don't think so. It's the quote that he was a coward came from the commandant said Campo to Tinai Stevens, who really despised virtually every spy that uh, was held there. He, he, had, he hadn't got a good word to say about any of them. I think he was, I think Job was a rogue, untrustworthy, totally unscrupulous, but I don't think he was a spy because, you know, he showed certain signs of courage. I mean, just offering to spy for the Germans and subsequently the British after his arrest um, would put him in very dangerous situations and he didn't shy away from that. The O2O report on him, the Camp O2O report, said he was craven, but the way they operated there was they told spies that they were, there was a very high likelihood that they were going to be executed. But if they came clean, there was a small chance they may not be executed. I think, you know, I was I was nervous coming on a podcast. He was nervous for being threatened with execution. And so I suspect I'm more of a coward than he ever was, to be honest. Um, what we know about him as a as character is what various um, MI5 officers reported back on him. Burke, Lieutenant Burke, back in Poole, said that he was a shrewd character, not lacking guile. Um, the immigration officer, Clark, said he was very astute and plausible and none too scrupulous. Major Humphreys in Poole said he was either simple or, ex or extremely clever and probably the latter. And it was only Stevens, Major Stevens, the Commandant Doturo, who called him a coward who deserves the contempt, who, who deserves the contempt of every British authority who he's come in contact with. But as I said, he disliked every single spy, more or less, that he came in contact with. When he knew he was going to hang, I think Job was pretty cool, basically, in the way he did it. His prison hospital records say that he behaved with, uh, that he didn't complain and he was very quiet. Um, he didn't offload on his brother, who he beloved, William. He came, even when he was in the condemned cell waiting to be, um, while, while the weeks ticked by, while his appeal was heard waiting to be hanged, he didn't contact the brother he loved to offload on him and tell him about his plight because he knew his brother was frail and he thought that he, uh, it might affect his health. So I think it some, takes some courage just to sit and stew on your own, knowing that execution is ahead of you without having anyone to talk to whatsoever. That was his choice. I don't know whether, um, I don't know whether, you know, suicide is a different, difficult subject. I don't know whether we should talk about courage or not in, in, in terms of suicide, but I, I'll just mention that when he was transferred from Brixton Prison to Wormwood Scrubs, um, after his conviction at the Old Bailey, they found, not the first day, the second day, they missed it the first day, that tied around his neck was a tie 
in the form of a noose made out of a blackout curtain. And there was a rope made from the sheet of uh, the hem of a sheet wound around his waist. So he clearly intended to hang himself if he was given the opportunity before the state had the chance to do it for him. I, does that take courage? I don't know. But it's an interesting incident in, in the end of his life. Absolutely. And um, Ed, throughout our interviews with you, I mean, it's been very, um, very kind of clear about what a fantasist Job himself could be and how difficult it is to, to sift through the fact and fiction of his life and then of this whole murky spy business during the war. I mean, after all of your, your research and writing the book, I mean, to round off our podcast, what kind of what did you end up personally making of Job? Well, it's hard to tell because the man was a congenital liar, as uh, you know, you find evidence of this right from the start, where even when he got married in 1906 in London, he makes up a fictitious address. He doesn't even put his proper address down. I mean, he just couldn't stop lying. So you, it's, hard to, it's hard to know exactly what's the truth and what isn't with Job. But what I think he was, he was an ordinary man. He was no Jason Bourne. He was no James Bond. He was just a very ordinary man in an extraordinary situation who made wrong and stupid decisions that eventually led to the hemp rope. Um, I think he was selfish and he was untrustworthy. Um, he was evidently very unpleasant. You know, he ditched his first wife, Alice, and their baby. He married bigamously, no doubt without telling his second wife, Marcel. He loved frail brother William, but he never thought about him when he took on the spying mission in Paris about what the impact would be on his frail brother. He was unpopular in the prison camps, the internment camps, because he was a snitch and had no time. You know, he, he stabbed his, his fellow internees in the back. So there was a lot going against him, but he did have one or two pluses, I think. I mean, you know, his first wife, Alice, kept his letters for 36 years. So he must have made some impact on her. Um, Marcel his second wife had to move 200 miles away because of her TB, but she didn't divorce him, which she could have done. She stayed married to him. He was very much, a, 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 he, was, he was very close to his mother and his brother. So he obviously could, he had something in him that, 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 that people admired. And, uh, you know, as I said, he would protect his frail brother at the very end. Um, he lived for me for three years inside my head when I was researching this. And did I get to like him? Not at all. But I did grow to kind of care for him a little bit. He was like the sort of the black sheep uncle in your family that you're just stuck with, but you have to help look after when he's in trouble. And he, I kind of got that feeling about him when, when I was researching him. Every time I rewrote the chapter that ended up with him being hanged, I must admit, I had sort of welled up a little bit because it just felt so sad. And I think, you know, there was huge evidence of his guilt, you know, with, you know, the invisible ink and the confession and the fact that he had the names of the internees he was supposed to send the letters with the invisible ink to in a notebook. There was all sorts of reasons why he was guilty. And in fact, after he was hanged, you know, the evidence was found that some Denny internment camp, which showed that he'd even offered to spy three or four years earlier for the Germans. But I, my personal view is that he was guilty of being a traitor when he was in Paris and he agreed to the mission to spy for the Germans. I don't think there's any doubt that that's what he intended to do, that he was at that point a traitor. But 
the charge that he were confronted at the Old Bailey was that he intended to spy when he arrived on British shores. Now, personally, I think when he was in Lisbon, he changed his mind. The reason for that is he doesn't seem to have had much contact with the Germans. He certainly didn't tell them when he left Lisbon. Um, he knew he had jewellery in his pocket that was worth in today's money about £10,000. And remember, he's an ex-Gem Raid convict who certainly knew his way around jewellery. Um, he hadn't been given much money by the Germans, if any. There were those one or two banknotes, but I think MI5 said they weren't worth, to quote them, a tinker's benediction. Um, he knew from the Dragonfly experience that the Germans had an awful lot of trouble paying agents who were in Britain, so he didn't really have much faith that they were going to manage to pay him when he got over there. And so my view is that he decided to keep the jewellery at that point. It was what was best for Job. He was only ever loyal to himself. He wasn't loyal to Germany. He wasn't loyal to Britain. He wasn't loyal to France. He was loyal to himself. And so I think personally that he was going to keep the money, come back to Britain and keep the jewellery and sell it for his own profit. The reason, the, the evidence perhaps that backs that up is that in Guy Little's diary, Guy Little being the head of MI5 counterintelligence at the time, he said, Job intends to pocket the jewellery and say nothing. Little put that in his diary. Tinai Stevens, the commandant at O2O, said what he intended to do was sell the jewellery and lie low. And in his original confession, Job said he admitted that he was going to sell the jewellery if in need. So I think he was a would-be traitor in Paris and Madrid. He was a nasty piece of work. But by the time he came to British shores, he was a crook and didn't intend to spy, which would put his life at risk. Rather ironic, as uh, eventually that's exactly what happened. So I personally think there was a miscarriage of justice, but anyone reading the book would be able to weigh up the evidence themselves and make up their own minds. Absolutely. Oh, well, that's a wonderful place for us to um, to wrap up. Thank you so much, Ed, for um, that extensive and engaging um, conversation with us. That was absolutely fascinating. For our listeners, could you let us know, Ed, the name of your book again and also where people can purchase it? It's Britain's Forgotten Traitor. It's published by Amberley Publishing. Um, to be honest, it currently seems to be with the distributors who say it should be sent out any day now, as I understand it. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, you, you should be able to pre-order it at any rate online and it should be available within days, I'm told, and also from bookshops. But thank you so much for allowing me to be so long-winded with you. <laughs> it's been a privilege being on. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Ed. Thank you so much. And thank you to Alina as well um, for co-hosting. And thank you to you, our listeners, and we'll see you again soon. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.